I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the media each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and joining me today is Chuck Marone. He's back, founder of the Strong Towns organization. Hey, Chuck. Uh, hey, Abby. <laughs> He's back. Like I'm I know. Like... It's been months <laughs> since we've talked. It has been a while since since we've done this podcast together. Yeah, my the book tour is all over, and I'm, I'm back in the office, and it feels very good to uh, have three months of uh, going out and seeing the country again. Sounds very nice. How's the country look? Looking good? Actually, yes. At the local level, there's a lot of excitement. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm. I think what COVID has done is it has scared us in many ways, and it has changed the way we look at each other and our communities. But I think it's also made us realize to an extent that we're on our own and we have to do some things for ourselves. And the places that have really figured that out and taken steps in that direction are really exciting right now. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a tough time to be an American, but I think also see a lot of hope in it. So. Yeah. Yeah. There could definitely be some, you know, beautiful outcomes that come out of challenging times. Most definitely. Well, that's, that's what you hope, right? When you go through challenging times, part of what you get is this hope that when we get through this on the other side, it will be better. And I think that a lot of times in my lifetime, that better has meant well, if we can get our candidate elected, or if we can get our federal policy <laughs> adopted, or if we can get you know this thing done, and I think people are starting to recognize that what that means is that we actually have to make things better, you know, like we, like you, like you and me, and my neighbors, and 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 the people in my community, like we actually have to do that ourselves. And guess what? Like we can actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. Some political candidate at the federal level is not going to <laughs> make our lives more more fulfilling necessarily more than, you know, things that are tangible and our communities will. At least that's the way I think about it. Well, and spend some time on it, but it's not the thing where like your energies will produce the most outcome. You know, we, we just got through Thanksgiving, right? And Thanksgiving, it, it's interesting because I have you know, parents who are, are, I don't think of them as elderly, but they're, my dad reached 70 this year. And I know he's, you know, he's, if he's not elderly, he's approaching it. My father and mother-in-law are 80 uh, this year. They're in this demographic where this is at least my experience. The first 20 minutes of talking to them, you have to sit and wait patiently and listen to them detox from all the like cable news. So you got to like, they got to tell you about their opinion on Kyle Rittenhouse and they got to tell you their opinion on, you know, th this and that. And, and, you know, they have like a whole litany of things that they have to just like get out because it's where they've, they've been primed to have their brain think. But once you get through that, uh, you can actually have some like beautiful conversations with them, but you've got to, you've got to let that, that, that detox happen. And yeah. <laughs> I've never been a big um, 
I guess, like, you know, following the news cycle kind of person. And I feel like over the past year when it's been so in your face, I like recently came to this realization of like, oh, this never ends. Like there's never a conclusion where the two sides say, oh, you know what? Like maybe this is, maybe we you can, won. you know, you meet won. in the middle. Yeah, you won. Yeah. <laughs> there, it never ends. It's like, it just, right. you know, there's like a fight and then there's no conclusion and people are get really riled up and upset, you know, and then something else happens and it's the next cycle. And I was like, oh, there's no conclusion to this. Like, it's just chaos. So I guess you could spend your your life focusing on this cycle, multiple cycles of, of chaos. You know, what's that going to do to you? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, for me, the realization came a, a while back when I realized or when I, I started to ask the question, like, am I a participant in this or am I a pawn in this? And and for a lot of times I thought by being informed, by being up to date, by having the latest thing in my feed, by like grasping what was going on, I was participating in the democracy of our nation. And then I started to like recognize that like, no, I'm just a pawn in, in, in a chess game, which my best interests are not even represented. So, so, you know, being informed is one thing. That's what I see in the country though as I travel around is that people to one degree or another are sucked into these things. I mean, they're sucked into like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and like what's going to happen next and what, yeah. what did the well, judge do? <laughs> what will they you do? Know? Yeah. And what, and, and by the way, the financial incentive comes from your attention <laughs> to the, the media. No, totally. You are the product. Right? You are the product. <laughs> right. Yes. You are the product that they're marketing to companies to sell you stuff. So like you are the product and, and, you know, you're the product that the the candidates are trying to. Yes, you are the product, and your attention is the thing that they're selling, all up and down the spectrum. Once you recognize that you're a pawn in this kind of thing, it does kind of liberate you. And I guess this is what I was getting at, as I see people recognizing because COVID forced us to rethink our our lives and our places, and the pandemic has really changed what it means to live in a place and be part of a community. For a large percentage of people, it has changed their relationship to the place they live in, in in ways that I think are really positive and have a tangible result in where people are willing to put their energy and time. That is like the essence of what we're trying to help catalyze here at Strong Towns is, you know, it, it's great to care about Kyle Rittenhouse. And if you've got an opinion on that and you want to get the latest news and and you know, follow along. Like I'm, I'm not going to criticize someone for caring about the infrastructure bill or a Supreme Court case or whatever. These things are fascinating. Like I, I get it. But your energy and your love and your passion and the thing that you get up in the morning and you know the thing that you need to detox from at Thanksgiving, hopefully, is something where your effort will result in more tangible benefits to you and to others. Yeah, no, that, that's that's very, very well said. And with that, let's jump into this media story that we are going to cover today. This one was published in Governing by Gregory Heller, and it is entitled, America's Housing Crisis is a Disaster. Let's Treat It Like One. So the basic premise of this article draws on the recognition that these new systems that we've developed under the COVID pandemic to distribute emergency housing aid is an important opportunity looking to the future from the author's perspective. So backing up a few years, 
before the pandemic, almost half of all renters nationally were spending more than 30% of their income on rent. And in 2016, there were almost 1 million evictions. So due to lack of funding or only a quarter of eligible tenants seeking support were able to access housing vouchers. And according to the article, the federal housing aid has been steadily declining for many decades now, while the costs continue to inflate. So this pattern shifted pretty drastically when the pandemic began as $75 billion of support for at-risk renters and homeowners were distributed to prevent evictions and foreclosures. This level of funding was spurred under the context that our country is facing this unprecedented and unpredictable emergency situation that is requiring disaster relief. So this framing of disaster relief really enabled policymakers to establish new structures with much you know, broader flexibility. And according to the author, these structures should continue to be leveraged as we face more chronic housing issues. So currently, our Congress is debating this Build Back Better bill that would basically include $150 billion of affordable housing aid, which would be intended to expand the supply of rental and single-family homes by 1 million units and expand down payment assistance and rental voucher programs. So if this new funding is passed, and this is apparently proposed, so there's a lot of ways that it's proposed to be funded. Apparently, it's a 15% tax on large corporations and a surcharge on companies that do stock buybacks and tax increases on high income earners. So all these kind of different ways. And, you know, we probably won't spend the episode debating uh, the merits of how we fund these things. But if the new funding is passed, the author is pointing out that we have all these new systems that have been set up to facilitate the distribution of funds from the federal level to the local level. So, As we've often talked about on this show, Chuck, housing is this wickedest of wicked problems. It's, of course, a very complicated issue that our society faces and very nuanced depending on where you are around, you know, different ways of potentially addressing it. So I'm curious what your initial thoughts are on this proposal of expanding voucher systems for rent and down payment assistance and reutilizing kind of these systems that have been set up during COVID to distribute federal aid. Is this the right way of thinking about how to alleviate the pressures of the housing market? No. (laughs) I read this article and I was kind of a little bit bewildered because let me start with an analogy and and I realize I'm going to jump from like one controversial topic to another here. But I remember back in 2010 when we were debating the Affordable Care, what would become the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare, the idea of needing you know a different approach. It, it is a disaster. It's an emergency. Healthcare is an emergency. Millions of people uncovered, uh, without coverage, millions of people lacking basic health care. This is an emergency. We need to do something. And the debate at that time, and I'm going to oversimplify it, but there was one kind of emphasis on we need to get people covered. And if we get people covered, if we get people coverage, if we get people health care, then we can use that position of like strength to drive down costs. The second like framing 
I'm intentionally ignoring the people who basically said like, we should do nothing because there's a whole group of people like that. And I, I do think that, you know, healthcare is, or was and is a, a disaster and an emergency. The corresponding to let's get everybody covered and then use that to drive down the cost was this idea of we need to drive down the costs and keep the costs under control because then more people can get covered. You're arguing the same thing. I mean, everybody agrees that these two things go in tandem in terms of healthcare, but you're also, there's a point where you have an emphasis on one or the other. And if you're emphasizing getting people covered, what we see, and we saw this with the Affordable Care Act, and we've seen this in the years subsequent, the actual cost containment doesn't happen. It actually goes in the opposite direction. The costs go up and it becomes even less affordable. If you focus on However, getting the cost down in order to get people covered, you have this problem with a whole bunch of people are going to go without coverage and a whole bunch of people are going to suffer. And so you're, you're stuck with like no good option. And I think we're looking at the same thing. You know, this article, I think, discounts this in housing. It just says housing is an emergency. It is something that everybody needs. It's something that we got to do something about. And look, when we were in COVID, we did all this stuff and this stuff was great because it got people into housing. I don't necessarily think that, you know, the outcome is rosy as was suggested. There's a, a huge surge in homelessness during the pandemic. There's a huge surge in housing stress. I know so many more people now today who have undergone stress in acquiring housing and not just at poor levels, but all the way through the income spectrum. And so the idea that we would look at the pandemic as like something that you know, solved housing issues in a way that can be repeated and scaled and all that. You you also had this, this problem that it was the suspension of feedback. I mean, we let people stay in their houses when they couldn't make the payments by adding on more debt to their loans. We allowed people to stay in their places that they were renting by allowing them to stiff their landlords. These are not like viable long-term strategies. And I, I, I get how they can be justified during emergency situations, but an article or a proposal that says like, these were really good things that had positive outcomes. I don't see A, how they had positive outcomes and B, I don't see how they're viable over the long term. So I, I'm with the person who's suggesting that this is a, the policy is a disaster and that we have to do something. I don't get how you look at what happened during the pandemic and say in any way that this was either good or repeatable. Yeah, that's something that I was kind of thinking about too as I was reading this article just because you know the article was very rosy about, oh, the distribution of funds was successful and kept people in their homes. Meanwhile, you know, anecdotally, I know a lot of people who's who have been squeezed by housing. And by the way, that includes through rising taxes. <laughs> I guess, you know, some counties have risen their property taxes during 2020. So during a pandemic, which is kind of like, you know, it's disingenuous for a government to like create a problem and then say, oh, we need federal dollars to throw at, you know, the problem when they're the ones raising the taxes on people. Also, you know, again, anecdotally, but the homelessness population has increased quite a bit where I live. And so, you know, I'm kind of wondering where this distribution of funds has been going because it's obviously not, you know, alleviating that issue. I do kind of wonder about, you know, incentives 
to lower costs because the article doesn't really address this. It does kind of focus more on how to subsidize the costs as they are. But we know that there's a lot of things that drive up cost. And you use the example of healthcare, but I've always kind of wondered about this discussion around like higher education. We always talk about like, oh, we should cover it. But then you wonder like, okay, so if you subsidize it on one end, is there any incentive to drive the cost down? Probably not, right? Like the cost can go up because it's covered. So what do we do to drive costs down? And it kind of, it occurs to me that if we had more housing than we needed, that the cost would not be as high. Right. I mean, there's, I don't want to be like, you know, say to say, yeah, perhaps, but it's like, I I don't want to say that supply is the only issue, but I'm definitely kind of wondering about how federal aid can be leveraged in a way that actually promotes sustained impacts if we are going to be leveraging federal aid, because I understand that there's this relief that needs to be provided and can be provided through these voucher programs, you know, but, but short-term relief is, you know, doesn't do everything. It, it's important for keeping people in their homes who are at risk. But what about these root problems that have created this instability for people in the first place, even beyond the cost of housing? And I know I understand that issue is extremely complex, but, you know, one part of the complexity, I think, that needs to be addressed is, is supply in terms of type of housing, price point, location, condition. There needs to be a long-term strategy for kind of untangling this mess that we've created. I mean, it's like a crisis of distortions where the cost of housing seems to be ever increasing and then supply is very much suppressed and people can't reasonably afford to live in places for a sustained amount of time unless their income just continues to go up and up and up. Yeah. You brought up higher ed and I feel like, you know, housing, healthcare, and higher ed are the the trifecta of distortion, right? Yeah, they're, exactly. They're, they're, the, they're the three parts of the economy that have not been subjected to like brutal market forces that have driven, you know, the price down. And I, I'll emphasize brutal. I'm not suggesting this would be friendly or happy, but they are the three like most distorted sectors of the economy. If we go back to healthcare, I had a very fascinating conversation this week with Uh, someone who works as an emergency nurse. An emergency nurse is someone who will basically move around the country and take short-term contracts, three months, six months, 12 months, to work in an area where there is emergency. And and now with the pandemic, there have been a, a lot of nurses who have left the system at their local uh, hospital and then become emergency nurses. And the numbers that this nurse was giving me were astounding. A nurse can make a, a you know a certain amount of money working at a local hospital as an employee, but if they go to be an emergency nurse, they can make five times, ten times that amount. But you know you don't have a long term contract and a long term relationship, and you're kind of a mercenary moving from place to place. It, it has a d- very different feel to it. One that you know she expressed was not the way you'd like to do medicine. But in this conversation, what was very clear was that the frustration over the way things are administered, hospitals will not, like, say, increase the pay and the salary of their 
regular employees. They will not increase the number of employees and give them a little bit more slack in the system. So instead of having uh, you know, five patients per ICU nurse, you're down to two, which is where ideally you would be. And so it creates this like really bad working conditions for people and, and it drives people to become, you know, leave the system and become contract nurses. Because if I'm going to survive this and live with this, I might as well get paid. The moral of the story is that why don't the hospitals respond rationally? And you look at it and you're like, well, why don't you just, you know, hire another nurse, like a regular nurse, instead of paying five times more for a contract nurse? And the answer to that question is that that's not how the hospitals make their money. They can get reimbursed for the emergency nurses. There's like programs for that. They can go through and fund insurance and do things a certain way. But if you go and change the pricing structure of your regular nurses or the, the, you know, the ratio of patient to nurse and all this stuff, it starts messing with your other reimbursements for insurance and the other things that you have. And so what we have is a brittle system where the patient is not the customer. The bureaucracy in the system is the customer. The patient is actually the product that is being marketed and sold to the insurance providers and the care providers and everybody else. When you go into a hospital, you are not the consumer. You are the product. You, you switch to being the product. In housing, we actually have a system that is operating now in that same way. When you go to buy a house, you are going to create as part of that transaction, a, a product, a 30-year mortgage. That product is actually the thing that has value. That's the thing that's being traded. That's the thing that's being securitized. You look at the transaction as like me getting in a house is the product, but that's not true at all. The market doesn't respond to that. It's not responding to your ability to pay. It's not responding to the, the demands of the marketplace. It's not responding in any way to that. What it's responding to is the overall like macro demand for this paper. And so I, I get the argument, like if we just went out and built a bunch more houses, supply and demand would drive down the price because there'd be a greater supply. I actually don't find that to be a very compelling argument right now at the end of 2021 because you know, uh, people would buy second homes and third homes and people with money would, you know, buy up real estate because it's a really good place to put your money right now because it's going up by 15% a year and uh, cash is going up by zero and actually losing money with inflation. Who wants to put their money in the stock market or bonds right now? They're vastly overvalued. So, you know, I'll buy a second house or a third house in a place where I want to live. I, I have no uh, faith in the idea that we're going to build our way out of this because, we really have a market that is not responding to people's ability to pay. It's responding to the financial side of this. You're not, your house is not the product that you're buying. You are the product that the financialized system is buying. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good argument against the kind of pure supply side argument. I want to talk a little bit about how this role of ownership plays a role in the housing market and kind of the mismatch priorities amongst homeowners and renters. Because if we're going to continue to have a housing market that is basically vested in values going up <laughs> to the benefit of homeowners, then you would think that you would want Americans broadly 
to be in ownership positions. Like that would be the top priority that people would not be renting, that they would have equity in the rising prices. And, you know, I understand that the proposed federal spending bill does include down payment assistance, which I think is important. But I just think what about what about renters who are receiving uh, support following federal spending? Like what happens to them when funding dries up and then they can no longer afford to participate in the market, you know, so long as they are adversely impacted by the prioritization of housing cost inflation. I don't know that this crisis would be alleviated. I've, I've been thinking a lot about kind of basically like what ownership of property should mean for Americans in the 21st century, because following World War II, there was this you know, huge emphasis on subsidizing ownership on a mass scale and creating financial products and structures that enabled, uh, you know, certain families to own single family homes, mostly in the suburbs. A couple of months ago, I was reading this, this document that one of our like tenants unions put out and they, one group illustrated this desire for a group of their neighbors all living in a sixplex to own that sixplex together as a group of six tenants and to manage it and you know basically own it as a co-op so that they could actually benefit from you know the the inflation of of the value of the housing and also have like a long-term situation where they're not kind of at the behest of you know what the owner of the property wants to do and if they want to make reservations and, or uh, renovations and move everybody out and and I actually think that's a beautiful vision that would help provide broader stability for people and help build prosperity for people who are currently not benefiting off of the housing market. So I think like as Americans, I think we need to ask ourselves what the intent here is and if if we are trying to be a country of people who kind of where where ownership is decentralized locally, where we all at the local level own and benefit from the value that we create. I, I think that that we need to think beyond kind of the 1950s financial structures of ownership where it, it works really well for owning and building single family houses in the suburbs. But we need to think about how do you how do you promote ownership of buildings in various types of environments and what do those structures look like? I want the tenants living in the sixplex. I would love to have for support to go towards them, you know, getting in an ownership of that building and getting, you know, support for learning how to manage and maintain a building like that. I think that is a more sustainable use of funds than simply, you know, giving people assistance for a limited amount of time. And then when the funding dries up at the federal level, we just say good luck. The challenge that you've got is that a lot of those structures used to exist and they used to exist prior to the Great Depression because, you know, home ownership was very localized. A lot of these things that are off the table now were very common. And the reason that they could be common is because they responded to local markets. Uh, you would buy a house and you would have a five-year balloon you know, type of, of payment system. And that's something that a local bank can do. That's something that local lenders can do. Local lenders can't take on 30 years of mortgage risk. They can't do it. Like they can't 
they, they, they can't bring money in and then lend money out at 30 years. There has to be a secondary market for that. There has to be a, a different place. And so what you have is you have basically a, a structure that you're describing that may or may not work, that may work in some instances, but not over time, that requires people to work together. And that may work in a, a market that's growing in value, but not one that's depressing in value. So there's a lot more volatility to the system that you describe than a 30-year mortgage or a 30-year product could, could handle. And so one of the reasons why you don't see that kind of stuff is because it does have that like lots of local nuance to it. You can't package it up. It's another reason why you you don't see rents go down. If you are renting out, you know, let, let's say that you own your house free and clear. So you don't have any mortgage issues, nothing you have to deal with with a big bank or anything like that. And you have a rental place, you know, you turned one of your bedrooms into a, a secondary unit that you rent out. If the market's really hot, you can raise the rent. If the market's really low, you can lower the rent. There's all kinds of flexibility that you have. If you are part of an ownership structure of a multi-unit apartment complex where that financial paper is now sold at a certain value, at a certain rental income onto a secondary market, it's securitized, it's wrapped up into a bunch of different pension funds and other investors all over the country. If you want to at some point go and say, you know what, we mispriced this whole thing. Uh, we're going to cut the rents in half because the market's just shifted downward and we got to do that. You will go out of business. You, you will have to come up with tons of cash to make up that difference. And so we see units sitting empty. We see units not being fully utilized. We see you know all this pressure in the market to go in one direction up in price with no like countervailing force that would reconcile what people's capacity to pay is with what the price of these units would be. I think that this article basically pushes for more distance between people and their ability to pay and the systems that would fund housing. And I think that if you are a current property owner, if you are, you know, and not planning to move at all, if you are the owner of commercial paper and a landlord, if you are, uh, someone who's got a pension fund, who's invested in all this real estate. Um, this is all like great news for you because prices will continue to go up and up and up. We will continue to have an emergency where the, you know, the, the tail wags the dog and we just chase our, chase our, chase our tail around and around in circles, trying to spend more money subsidizing the same thing. And we will wind up in a place where I think more and more people will find housing unaffordable despite our best efforts. I predict that, and I said this, I think on this podcast before, but I think in the next, you know, two to three years, we will see 50 year mortgages in the U S we will see that rolled out as like the, the response to high housing prices will be to load people up with more debt for longer. Jeez. Well, so if we agree that of this framing that America has a housing crisis, that needs to be dealt with, with a sense of urgency, thinking beyond federal subsidy. What are your thoughts on on how you would address that? I mean, how do you address a housing crisis? Can you address a housing crisis in a really meaningful way at a level that isn't federal? Well, let me, let me go back to the analogy with healthcare. I mean, in healthcare, we have to both get people covered and lower overall costs. 
to me, the way you do that in healthcare is you give you give insurance companies the mandate that you're going to provide insurance, but it's going to have like a massive deductible, like a $50,000 deductible. And most of what everybody's going to do is going to be cash. They're going to actually pay for it themselves. Now, I think the federal government can come in and backstop all of that and say, if you've got more than 50000 we will loan you the money to make that, that gap. We will. No one's going to go without coverage. No one's going to lack stuff. I think there's ways to make this work, but we got to localize the market. We have to actually have people paying for the services and, and you know, in order to get that price feedback. I think the same thing goes for housing. We actually have to relocalize our housing markets. We have to make our housing markets responsible to people on the ground or responsive to people on the ground. Because on the one hand, not only are prices out of whack between what people can afford to pay and what the prices actually are, but you have this related thing where we've grown all these NIMBYs who have like expectations of their neighborhoods never changing because the stress that they experience in their neighborhoods are not directly correlated to anything that they can respond with. If if all of a sudden we can respond to this market stress by providing efficiency apartments and duplexes and granny flats and other things, we can say, you know, our neighborhoods are going to thicken up over time and this single family home will become a three unit place, you know, over the next four or five years. If those were actually commonplace occurrences that responded to this, this market, it would create an opportunity for existing homeowners and an opportunity for people who need housing in a way that responded in a localized marketplace. We cannot solve this by having a New Deal version 2.0 where we come in and rescue local markets by pouring more money in. We will just make the problem we're having worse. Yeah. And, and the concern, I think, is, you know, do people have the capacity at the local level to change the culture around how we look at housing and understanding that the type of housing that has been built doesn't necessarily fit all of the different needs that exist in the market and that there are ways to kind of retrofit and, um, you know, be flexible to current day conditions to me, that seems to be an incredibly important issue that a lot of communities, you know, whether it's because of politics or whatever, that they don't, you know, want to even have that conversation because there's kind of this really pernicious expectation that we can like micromanage all of our neighbors <laughs> around us. That's become kind of the cultural norm, unfortunately, that that we are entitled to you know, really micromanaging things that are like as specific as, you know, who's living in the house across the street or is that one units or two when, you know, it's like small scale housing types, you know, a lot of times they look like a single family house, but they might have an ADU or have um, another unit in the attic where somebody else lives. I mean, it's, I feel like micromanaging is bad. Yes. I was in San Diego last month as part of the book tour. And I was chatting with someone who's like, yeah, I, you know, I made $40,000 last year off my house, you know, cause it rose in value. And I cashed that, I cashed out a lot of that and used that to pay my expenses. And I mean, if, if, if you have an asset that you know is going to grow by 40,000 a year, you can spend an extra 3000, you know, 2000 a month on that asset because you can cash that out and recycle that back in and use that to make your payments. What is lost in like the binary equation of we need to build more 
or, you know, we need to subsidize more is the fact that, you know, both of those things right now are fueling the problem. And unless we, you know, change this system, unless we change the way the money's coming in, what it's allocated towards and, and, and how it's utilized, you know, unless we can localize that feedback loop, everything that we're doing right now is just driving the problem and making it worse. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. I think we solved it. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well, this before... is the next strong. This is the next strong towns book, and so uh, Daniel, my coworker, and I, he's been on this podcast a number of times, are working on the next, the next book, which will be all about housing. And the fascinating thing is that Daniel and I are both very sensitive to different things. I would say I'm very sensitive to the uh, the finance and the price structure. Daniel's very sensitive to uh, to the human element, and I. I have learned a lot from listening to him and understanding him because, you know, th these are real people and real homes. And it's, you know, when, when, when we do policies in this way, we're really doing damage to, uh, to families, to people, to humans, to our neighbors, you know, in ways that are really disruptive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm very, very excited to read that book and, Looking forward to that coming out. I don't know if you guys have a projected timeline for that, but. Oh, I can't announce it yet. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. But it won't be. I mean, it took two years between the two books and that was in suffering a concussion and a pandemic. So yeah. I don't think we'll be talking that long. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, we'll look yeah. forward to that announcement. Um, so before we conclude today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything we've been up to lately, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to. Uh, so Chuck, it's been about a month, so I'm sure you've consumed lots of uh, media materials over the past month. What have you been up to these days? Um, lots and lots of stuff. Yes. I think this is our last podcast of the year. That we're doing for upzone is that is that true or not yes i think it is so it's that time of year i was pondering how grateful i am for so many things but one of the things that i'm i'm you know extra grateful for is just you this is the second full year you've done this this podcast with us uh, i feel like it's your podcast now that i'm a guest on your show as opposed to <laughs> you doing something you know for strong towns you, you you own this thing you do a tremendous job with it I'm deeply impressed with you. People don't recognize maybe the way I do that you work hard at this. You do research and you come prepared. And I just am very, very grateful that you're here. And I'm very grateful because the audience for this podcast has grown huge. This is like one of our most popular things that we do, Upzoned is. I hear from people all the time how much this is their favorite podcast and they love you and they, they love the work that you do. And so I just wanted to end the year by saying how grateful I was uh, to be your friend and to have you here and to be able to do this with you regularly. Thank you. And thanks for taking me to the World War I Museum too. That was one of my highlights, <laughs> of, my, highlights of my year was spending time with you in Kansas City. Oh, Chuck, that is so sweet. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoy these weekly discussions and it's fun getting to know you and the other members of your team. And, you know, I, I love doing this. It's, I think it's a lot of fun and keeps me honest on top of all these different kind of news articles and topics that are coming up. I, I feel like it's uh, made me a better planner staying on top of these things. Um, and by the way, 
I I just learned that the Kansas City Symphony does these shows where they screen a movie and the symphony plays the live music and they do Harry Potter and it's no in February. Really? Uh-huh. I was oh I just gosh. learned that today and it the tickets are very expensive actually, but <laughs> I was thinking like, oh man, Chuck came at the wrong time cuz that would have okay. been cool. Well, let yeah. me see. Let me see what the calendar in February looks like. Yeah, I'll see if uh, I can find it. it I mean, I'm like that City. would be insane. A- apparently, right now they're doing Home Alone, so okay. they they cool. like play the symphony, does the music, and they play the movie. Oh, um, wow! So I guess they can take yeah. the music track out of it and sure. you know insert the people speaking. However, that works. That that is fascinating. That's yeah. just that's just amazing. Yeah, could you imagine? No, no, that that would be a ton of fun because that music is really beautiful music too. It it really is well us. Uh, it's a well scored uh, film, uh, you know, series. So I'm I'm not I'm I wonder what one they're showing, you know, because there's eight of the movies. But good question. Um, I yeah. I would think it's probably the first one, but I I haven't looked it up yet. So well, the first one is not the best one. So I wonder if they what? like a the first the first movie. I think the first movie is the best. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love the whole introduction Do you? to Hogwarts. It, yeah, it I love is, it. It is whimsical. It's so it is very nice. I, so my, I, I think I've told you this before, but my wife, you know, has, was reading all the books and reading them basically as they came out. So she had to suffer through the long wait between books. And um, she brought me to, she was excited and she brought me to the movie. She's like, we're going to go to this movie. And so I went to the first one and I'm like, yeah, this is nice. And she's like, oh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I'm like, yeah, it was good. And then the second one, I'm like, yeah, that was, that was really good. That was worth our time. And then the third one, I'm like, wow, that was, that was interesting. Like, that was a really good movie. And then the fourth one, I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I need to read these books. And so there's a, there's a tension in our marriage around Harry Potter because she like as we were traveling you know before we had kids and all this she would read the book and she would just be like frustrated because she needed like the next book and it'd be like a you know a long period of time and i got to read them i read them in like three weeks like the whole series like i took a day off work and (laughs) read the last book because i'm like i gotta know what happens and she's like i hate you i had to wait two years for this thing to come out so yeah i i mean i think it's a good point that the um the storyline becomes more interesting after the first. Um, to me, it's it's almost like a nostalgia thing because I want to age myself, but I was probably like eight years old when the first movie came out. So to me, it's like a pinnacle, you know, a very important part of my childhood, that first movie. So you, I feel that way about the first Star Wars movie because that was the one I saw in the theater as like a six, five-year-old or something like that, six-year-old. Really? Um, yeah. 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 Huh. So I was born in 73 and I think that one came out in 78 and then, you know, it, it, movies used to play differently because it didn't come to Brainerd like right away. Like it, I don't know, they had to send it on like Pony Express and there was yeah, a, back, a back monkey in, that turned the wheel, you know. Like, back in ye olden days. <laughs> Yeah, but it got here, and I remember going to it uh, with my dad and sitting in the very back row on the so I could stand on the seat because I wasn't blocking anybody. Um, and I just remember being enthralled by that. And and yeah, even though I recognize it's like not the best cinematic movie ever, it's magical for me because it was this world 
that I then immersed myself in as a first grader, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah. definitely probably contributes to who you are as a person today. Yeah, Star probably. Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, well, the whole team and I are going to Star Wars land next week, so we'll see. I'm. Uh, yeah, take some pictures. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, I will take pictures. Awesome. Uh-huh. Thank you, Abby. You're welcome. Well, you know, I don't have a ton to share, you know, that when we're recording this, Thanksgiving was a week ago. So I was traveling last week, which was a lot of fun. I got to go to Thanksgiving in St. Louis and see my family. Um, I guess I haven't seen you in a month. So I passed my AICP exam for anyone who's I know wondering. You did. I'm cheering for so, you. So yeah, I got. I never had that much test. doubt because you took it very seriously, and I'm I'm really, yeah, you took it very seriously, and I I I didn't want to say like I knew you would do it because I didn't want you to like then have something go wrong and then be like oh, I disappointed Chuck or whatever, but. I knew you'd do it. I, I did feel like it was a kind of a complicated test. That I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to testing, and I feel like I didn't know how to prepare for what would be on it. And when I was taking it, I feel like a lot of the materials that I that I studied, you know, was it helpful to that test? I'm not sure. It was kind of a crapshoot, but. But wasn't um, it complicated? Not in like you had to know like the dates of when some act was, but like you would read the question and then be like, okay, I feel like the answer is C, but I feel like they would want me to answer B, which is not technically right, but like I think that's what they want. I feel like there were a lot of questions where multiple answers could have been right, but mm-hmm. you need to choose the quote unquote best answer. Right. And <laughs> I, I mean, there were many questions where I, I marked probably more than half of them as like, go back later, you know, in these digital testing facilities, yeah. you can mark them. Yeah. Okay. And so okay, as nice. I was going back through the questions, there were many that I just kind of stared at for a few minutes, just trying to figure out what, what the right answer was. And, and, as I was finishing up, I just remember thinking, like, I cannot fail this test. Like, I can't walk out of here. <laughs> like, I'm not, I cannot, oh. I can't do this again. So, yeah. thankfully, well, I'm, and I'm, then and then when you finish it, um, it's like, are you sure you want to finish it? And you're like, yes. <laughs> are you sure? Yes. Uh-huh. And then you finish, you know, fin- finalize it. And then it takes you to a survey. So, you're, like, waiting for the, the you know, score to load. And it, you have to take a survey. So th- I was like trying to get through this survey so I could see the score and, you know, a lot of anxiety. I don't like taking yeah. tests. So. Yeah. I'm, I was really happy when I heard that you passed. So congratulations and welcome to the, uh, welcome to the world of AICP certification. I gave mine up a while back, but I, I admire you and, and your dedication to it. So good well, job. Thanks, Chuck. So I will see you when it is 2022. Isn't that exciting? It's weird, but yeah, exciting. One way to put it. I think this is our longest upzone ever. So we'll give people Uh a lot to to listen to between now and uh, when we get back together again. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. It's long form now.
Okay. Well, thanks, Chuck. Thanks for joining me today. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Have a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks.